First Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15, God's role for women in the church. As we looked at the previous passage here in First Timothy, we're challenged to pray for everyone, especially those in positions of leadership. Uh, we're to pray that they may lead a quiet and peaceful life with godliness and reverence according to First Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And one of the things that stands out in my mind from last week, not only are we to pray for everyone, especially those in leadership, but two more things. Number one, that they may lead a peaceful, quiet life. I, I don't know if that's possible for some people in leadership. We talked about the president. We talked about other key people in Congress, senators. It just seems like no matter what they say, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what is done or accomplished or not done or accomplished, it just seems like there is a barrage of attack that just never stops. And I can't imagine anyone who'd want to be in those positions. And, uh, but Lord bless them. They're in there, and they need our prayers. And number two, the challenge really is, especially for men, to pray. Men to pray. And as we come to this next passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 8 through 15, we kind of ended last message two weeks ago, uh, with verse 8, but I want to pick up with verse 8 once again. It says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up uh, holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. I like especially where it says in the New American Standard Bible that word desire really is translating want. He said, this is something I want. Obviously, we believe, according to God's word, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We know that, according to First Peter, that the, this is not of anyone's private interpretation. It wasn't based on man's opinion, man's biases, man's prejudices, man's uh, thoughts. This is God's word coming out through man as he wrote the New Testament. And so there's a lot there that we can consider but he says, I really want, therefore, that men pray everywhere. So the challenge two weeks ago to us as men is that we need to be praying, right? We need to be men who pray. And he says, not only praying, but according to verse 2 there, that all men be praying and that we lift up holy hands, righteous hands. And uh, we know that we want, as we pray, we want that prayer to be effective, right? Uh, I know for you, I need, uh, in my own life, I know that there are times when I said, Lord, I really need you to work. I need you to show up. I need you to make yourself known. I need to make your will known. And I was so careful in my own thought, my own mind, to, to make sure that there was not sin in my life that would hinder, that would hinder my prayers. Because God's word is very clear, right? Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And I said, Lord, I, I want nothing to hinder my prayer. I want nothing to hinder you answering and working in my life through prayer. And then Proverbs 28 says, he that cover the matter shall not prosper. So I don't want to cover any sins in my life. I want to make sure that my hands are holy, that my, hand, my heart is righteous before God. And so those things are important to me. And, I, and, and that doesn't mean I'm going to get my, get my way just because I have no sin at the moment in my life, by the way. Uh, it, it means that my heart desire, I want to remove the hindrance if there is one uh, for God to not have a reason not to, or for God to have a reason not to work. So I want God to answer my prayer. But he says, I desire, therefore, that men pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without doubting. And once again, guys, there's a responsibility on us that as we pray, that we pray in faith, pray in confidence, believing. And it tells us in the book of Hebrews that he that comes to God must believe that he exists 
and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? So we want to go before God with a, with a holy heart, with a righteous heart. We want to go before God in faith, believing, and lifting those holy hands as we come before God, palms up, saying, God, I need you to work as only you can. So the responsibility we saw two weeks ago, especially is on men, that you be men of prayer. That's so important. And you would think that in the same topic, in the, or in the same vein, that he would direct the women, you need to be doing this. But he goes on a different kind of a direction. And I really have to scratch my head a little bit in this direction. He says, and women, likewise, I want you uh, to adorn yourselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing. And there's all kinds of uh, commentary on these passages and what they might mean, what they might not mean. But Paul told Timothy that he desired, he wanted men everywhere to pray, and then he said, in like manner, I want women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Now, before I get into this passage, I wanted to admit a couple things. Number one, I'm not a bigot uh, that has the idea that women are nothing and men are everything or that men are better than women. Just so you know that, that's my heart. And so it's kind of often as you get into a passage like this, there are some who want to argue that point. And I, I've had more than a few women in my churches over the years that would quit very quickly and joyfully ensue an argument over what God's Word says, though delivered by God's man in the pulpit. Uh, so I just want you to know, I'm not a bigot. I'm not a, I'm not a prejudiced person about what God says is the role of women. And, uh, but also for these reasons, I've shied away from preaching through this passage. I've never preached to First Timothy as a whole before, other than just some key passages within it. But, secondly, God's word is clear in this passage, though many women don't like what it says. And uh, we live in a culture where women are more and more against what God's word says in these passages. And uh, I just want you to hear me very clearly. And I'm going to say it twice. Men and women have God-given roles. They have God-given roles. And when those roles are observed and fulfilled, there is order. <clears throat> and when God's roles for mankind are ignored, there's chaos and frustration, period. I really believe that with all my heart. Men and women have God-given roles. And when those roles are observed and fulfilled, there is order. And God's Word, by the way, says in 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently in order. And this was one of the reasons or one of the circumstances by which he called for order in the church was over women speaking in the church. This was one of the factors that played in that passage in 1 Corinthians. But when God's roles for mankind are ignored, there is chaos and frustration. Period. I oftentimes, uh, as, a, as different ones have come to me and said, Hey, Pastor Ken, will you uh, perform our marriage ceremony? Will you uh, guide us through that? And oftentimes... Uh, as I do premarital counseling, and I don't know that I've ever done a wedding without doing at least six to eight weeks of premarital counseling, that I've often used this phrase as we come to the end of that time and we start to get to where we are writing the vows. And uh, some of the people, even in this room, said, do I have to put that in my vows? Uh-huh. And here's what I often say. Men, you have one responsibility. One. And you know what it is? To love your wife. Do you realize that, yes, there are other responsibilities that we have as men of God, but when it comes to your relationship with your wife, you have one responsibility. It's the love. That's it. 
But here's the deal. How is that love manifested? My own definition of love, as I've used for years, is love is a decision that results in an action and expects nothing in return. Love is a decision that results in an action and expects nothing in return. The bottom line is God has called me to love my wife and to give my life for her even as Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. I'm to love... Man, if I could love my wife half as much as Christ loved the church, I'd be doing well. But our responsibility as men is to love. Women, God gave you one responsibility for your husband in the context of marriage. You know what it is? Obey. So I've had women at times, do I have to put that in my vows? Yep. Because that's a biblical vow. I'm going to vow what God has called me to do. I'm going to obey my husband. And here's the thing that often happens throughout a marriage lifetime. Oftentimes, chaos comes in, frustration comes in, and it's usually because man is not fulfilling his role or woman is not fulfilling their role. When a man loves as he ought to love, I believe with all my heart that reciprocal action of the woman will be to obey. And when a woman obeys, a man should love. That's the picture. That's the design that God has for marriage. Uh, my wife has said many times throughout the years, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Carte blanche, no discussion asked, as long as you know it's what God has told you to do. And if I show her that love, she's willing to obey. But here's the problem. When man doesn't love, oftentimes the reciprocal reaction is that women don't want to obey. They don't want to do what God's called them to do. And that's where the difficulty comes in because we're both selfless. I remember telling the story once of something I was told. I reiterated this story as a friend of mine who was a counselor at a large church in Indiana. And part of his role as assistant pastor was to do the counseling in the church. He was a counseling pastor, the counseling elder. And as they would come into his office and they're ready to tear each other's head off. Bottom line is, he said, listen, I'm sure you've been to this church. We run 3,500 people here on Sunday morning. He goes, I don't really know you. I've seen you maybe. But the bottom line is, you're in here because you're ready to get a divorce. He goes, I could give a flying flip whether you get a divorce. Thinking, well, there's a guy I want to go to marriage counseling for it with. But he looked at me and goes, I don't really give a flip whether or not you get a divorce. And by this time, both people are sitting there going, huh, why are we here? He says, here's what I'm concerned about. How is your relationship with God and are you fulfilling the role that he's given you as a husband? How is your relationship with God and are you fulfilling the role that God gave you as a wife? Bottom line is, if you're doing what God has called you to do, if you're the man of God that you ought to be and that you claim to be, then you'll be working on you. And if you're the woman of God that you claim that you are and that you're fulfilling the role that God has called you to fulfill, you'll work on you rather than looking at what he's not doing, looking at what she's not doing. And the bottom line is, how are you walking with God right now? That's a bigger question. How is your relationship with God? See, it's really easy when, my, when I'm not fulfilling my role because of sin in my life or whatever the circumstance may be, it's really easy to say, well, I'm justified in what I'm doing or how I'm acting or what I'm not doing because they're doing this. No justification for sin, folks. We are responsible for our own actions, right? We're responsible for that. So men, your job is to love. In fact, it tells us in 1 Peter 
chapter 3. And I, I think, guys, you need to take a mental note of this. You need to highlight it, put it in bold marker. But listen to this verse. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Guys, when's the last time you really recognized that your prayers are being heard and answered? Could it be that you're not loving your wife as you ought? Could it be that you're not giving honor? And we talked about many times about what the word honor means, and I kind of jokingly use the illustration of a pen. And you know, you know most of you know that I'm a, I'm a pen, pen guy. I like nice pens. I hate cheap pens. Um, but this is my gold pen. Bottom line is, I want to give you a definition for those of you that haven't been here for a while, what it means to honor. You say, I want that gold pen that you held in your hand. Right. You want this gold pen? It's going to cost you $50. You say, Pastor, it's not worth $50. It is to me. Now, you can go down to Staples, you can get to Walmart, you can buy one for five, six bucks, and it can be yours. But this one, if you want this pen, it's going to cost you 50 bucks. You say, well, that's ludicrous. No, but it demonstrates the definition of honor. Honor means to give value to. I'm giving a value to this pen. You say, well, it's crazy. It's a pen. Right, it's crazy, but just for illustrative purposes. It's a pen. And I've attributed a value to it. And if you want this pen from my hand, it's going to cost you $50. So what are we saying here? To honor means to give value to. And he says, men, you're to honor your wives as the weaker vessel. You say, well, some of you women might say, well, that's prejudice. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's crazy. I'm not a weaker vessel. Yes, you are. And there's no... There is no uh, disrespect in that whatsoever, in any way, shape, or form. It is what it is. It's what God says it is. And for years, I required everybody that I did a wedding ceremony for, as I did premarital counseling with them, I encouraged them to read Gary Smalley's book, Love is a Decision. Because there's a couple chapters in there where, where he demonstrates from a medical viewpoint, from a scientific viewpoint, the differences in the genetic makeup of a woman versus a man. I'm just telling you, there are some physical differences beyond the obvious. In the blood cells, in, in the DNA, women cannot go for 27 hours at a time like some men can. Is that disrespectful? No. Now, is there an exception to the rule? Yes, there always is. But God made women different. He didn't make them less respectable. He says, we're both the same in marriage, right? But he made women different. He calls them the weaker vessel. And as such, men, you are to protect them. You are to stand beside them. You are to uphold them. You are to lift them up because they are the weaker vessel. You shouldn't expect them to do everything that, that you don't want to do. You should help them. But sometimes we have the idea that we as men, we have one set of standards and women, they have a different set of standards and, well, they don't mix. Shame on you. Shame on you. I can promise you as I stand before you, I change as many diapers as my wife did. I vacuumed the house as much as she has. I've probably done as many dishes, but not quite lately. We work together. But I do what I can to take the burden off her in as many areas as I can. Because she is the weaker vessel. It's no disrespect. The bottom line is, men, you're to love and how you love is demonstrated by your actions. And women, when they love you, 
even if they don't do it correctly, your God-given role is to obey. Now, it's easier when men are doing their role, and then usually it's reciprocal. So as men are to pray everywhere, women in like manner are to adorn themselves in modest apparel, or literally, proper clothing. Proper clothing. So what does this mean? As I'm sitting there going through all these passages of Scripture, I'm thinking, what does that even mean, to, to adorn in proper clothing? There have been dozens of explanations communicated through the years, but what is Paul saying to Timothy in this passage regarding the apparel of women? I think there are at least three characteristics that are given here. None of these characteristics are words that we often use in our English vocabulary. Um, so what is proper clothing? Well, first of all, he says, with propriety, as we look at our text there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, or verse 9, excuse me, in like manner also the women that adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety, with moderation, and not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing. Now I say, what does that all mean? Well, propriety has the idea of shamefacedness. In other words, there is no shame in what I'm wearing. Um, uh, there's honor in what I'm wearing. There's reverence in what I'm wearing. There's regard for others in what I'm wearing. There is even as some literal translations of the Greek language said, there is actually a, uh, an idea of there is a bashfulness in what I'm wearing because the bottom line is I'm not putting myself out there for people to wonder what really is underneath these clothes. And the bottom line is there is a discreetness here. Say, so is this really a problem? Yeah, it really is. Uh, there are certain stores in our areas that you go there in the middle of the day and they're wearing pajamas. And as my wife says, they're wearing out in public what I don't wear to bed. The bottom line is we've all seen it. And we're to not do that as women. So propriety has the idea that there's no shame in what I'm wearing. I don't have to second guess if what I'm wearing is going to be a stumbling block to someone else. I remember years ago, uh, I grew up in a scenario where um, I always thought it was quite often, I always thought the issue, real issue was modesty, not in necessarily what you wear. And I grew up in a scenario where, where women to wear, were not to wear pants. And I often thought it was less modest to not wear pants than it was to wear pants in some of the scenarios that I, that I observed in my lifetime. And I often thought, this is kind of crazy. Um, bottom line is, I remember going skiing at Afton Alps. And uh, I remember a table full of guys looking at the girls who came in in uh, culottes going downhill skiing. And I remember thinking the ridicule and the shame and really less modest than actually wearing a pair of pants. Or people were sitting in a circle, a youth group, looking across from each other. Pants were more modest. I think the issue is modesty, not necessarily what you're wearing. Is what I'm wearing modest. But it has the idea of being what, what is proper, what is best? Propriety. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Oops. Back one page here. My pages are sticking together. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 says, 
the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. There's the idea of being discreet, chaste, wearing the right thing so that we don't leave others to wonder what's underneath. I remember one time, as I, uh, as I was saying, growing up in the era that women were not to wear shorts or they were not to wear you know, pants or certain things. And we had this rule and sometimes they would say, one finger, two finger, three finger at the knee. Anybody remember those days? Yeah, some of you are raising your yeah, remember those days. One finger, two finger, three finger. Well, I made the comment in, one of the, in the church that I was pastoring to the youth group because there was a problem. Remember the era where all the ladies were wearing shorts, but then they'd roll them up four times and then hike them up? Yeah, that was a thing for a while there. Just like rolling your pant legs were up for guys, and you know, I did that too. Um, I remember making the statement says, hey, ladies, can we just do me a favor? Just keep what you're wearing as modest as possible. That's all that I said. Let's keep it as modest as possible. And then I made the demonst- did the demonstration that said this. This is modest. This is immodest. Let's keep it somewhere more modest than less modest. That's all I said. I got reamed out by a parent for asking the girls to wear modest clothing. And I no sooner said that on a Sunday night youth night that I got home and I could hold the phone way out here and the guy was reaming me out. How dare you tell my daughter what she can wear and what she can't wear? You mean to tell me I have to go out and buy two sets of clothes, one for church and one for home? And I could hear him way out here and my wife was going, who is that going off? And I said, listen, all I said was, this is more modest, this is less modest, Let's keep it somewhere over here. And I got reamed out for it. And I said, no, sir. I think you should just have one set of clothes that's modest everywhere. Bottom line is, we need to be modest. And here's the interesting thing. It was his son who came anonymously to one of our youth leaders and said, I'm struggling in my mind because of what some of the girls are wearing. And for that reason, he wasn't going to the amusement park that was coming up the following week. He said, I'm struggling. I don't need the incentive of wondering what's underneath their dress. And it was because of what some of the girls were wearing. This, own, this man's own son was the one who precipitated us saying, hey, let's be careful. Women, don't leave it to others. Don't show off to others what only your husband should see, if you're married, by the way. You shouldn't leave it up to their imagination what's underneath because you're wearing things that are not covering everything. Say, so is that a problem? Not necessarily all the time here, but bottom line is, you know what you wear other, way, other places. I know what I see in public. And we don't need any help. So as men are to pray everywhere, women are to adorn themselves. First of all, with pri- propriety. Wearsby says this, and I like what Warren Wearsby said about this subject. He says, propriety asks the questions. Is it, or my clothing, is my clothing appropriate? And can I just say this? Wearing stuff that you should wear to bed in public, up at the Walmarts, is not appropriate. We all see it, and I'm not just there, but in all places. Is it appropriate? 
Is what we are wearing appropriate? And does it, my clothing, draw attention to me? If it's drawing attention to me, we need to be careful. And can I say this, parents? You are called to parent your child, not be their best friend. What do I mean by that? There are going to be times that your kids want to buy clothing that you know is not appropriate and is not pleasing to God. Now let me say this. Is it hard? It's getting increasingly more difficult to find clothes that are appropriate, to find clothes that are proper. I remember going to store after store after store as Andrew was growing up and we're trying to find something that's either not A, skin tight, doesn't have holes in it, or is not revealing, and it's hard. It's hard to find stuff. But in sake of being our kids' friends, we just kind of give in, even though we know it's not best and right. I don't know about you. I'm just saying this, parents, that if I knew that there was a young man looking at my daughter with intent, I'd want to slap the snot out of him. Right, guys? Don't let him do it. You're not called to be their best friend. You're called to be their parent. And that means difficulty is going to be there at times. I'm not there. I like what one of the parents in my youth group said, I would rather my child hate me for the moment and love me for a lifetime than to love me at the moment and hate me for a lifetime. I'm not called to be their best friend. That's why I help guide them in their music choices. That's why I help guide them in their clothing choices. That's why I help guide them in their dating choices. I help guide them because that's my job as a parent, right? Then he says, number two, with moderation. Moderation has the idea of sobriety or good sense and self-restraint. I may want to wear this, but I'm going to wear this because I know it's right. It's modest. There's a sobriety about it. In other words, uh, there is a mental state that's involved that says, hey, this is good. This is good. Has good sense. There's self-restraint. And Wearsby puts it this way. Moderation asks the question, is it too much? Is what I'm wearing just too much? Is it over the top? Why? Because once again, it's drawing undue attention to myself. And honestly, honestly not just women, but men and, men and everyone in general, we're to be a reflection of who? Christ. Paul said it this way, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. John the Baptist said, I am to be an image bearer of Christ. He goes, in other words, I want to reflect, reflect Jesus Christ. So when people see me, I don't want them to see John, I want them to see a picture of Christ. But that's what this word has the idea of. That there is moderation. It asks the question, is it too much? So with Propriety, according to the New King James, with moderation. And then number three, I kind of made a long word up to describe what's being said here, with inconspicuousness. With inconspicuousness. Let me rephrase that. He says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly clothing. You see, there's not only just the idea of modesty, there's an idea of, I'm going to show off what I got. Bottom line is, you saw it in the, in, in the, in the women who were part of the, the, the uh, city of Ephesus. There were wealthy women uh, who liked to show off their wealth and bring attention to themselves. So they would intertwine gold and pearls into their hair. So they would look at everybody and say, look at me. 
Look what I got. Look at my hair. Look at my gold. Look at my pearls. Look at everything I've got. You know, and they would try to purposely bring attention to themselves. And it was causing not just a problem of immodesty, but also a problem of, of belittling others who didn't have what they had. I don't know about you, but there are some women who love their clothes. I mean, they love their clothes. They got more clothes than they could wear in a lifetime. That's a problem. Because it says, this is where my attention is. This is where my affections are. And I want to make sure that I look good. I mean, who doesn't like a new pair of shoes, right? Who doesn't like a new, new pair of pants? And I'm just telling you, i got to tell you a little side story here. As I'm starting to lose weight, and I went from like a 48.50 waist down to like a 42, I found that there's a rubric that changed. They think that when you're like 48 and 50s, that your ankles are actually 48s and 50s too. You ever, th- you ever saw that? Like, your pant legs flopping in the wind, you know? All of a sudden, I hit 42, and it's like there's a tapered leg, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what tapered is. That's pretty cool. I like this concept. So I kind of like new clothes now. But here's the thing. Why do we get what we get? Is it to draw attention and focus to ourselves? Say, look at me, look what I got, look what I can afford, or not afford, but make you think I can afford. Look what I got, look what I'm wearing, look, look at me. And these women were adorning themselves with gold and, and jewels and pearls and, and they're intertwining in their hair just so they could look at everybody and say, look what I've got. Look what I'm wearing. Look at me. He says, we're going to be a little more inconspicuous than that. Bottom line is sometimes we get distracted by the stuff. And we use the stuff, the clothing, to look at ourselves. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read just a few of these verses here. Beginning of verse 1. I believe that this passage explains one of the key reasons why beauty must come from within rather than without, from the outside. Verse 1 says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. I wish that were always the case in every circumstance that every wife who has an unbelieving husband would be one that simply. That's not always the case. But it won't be because they didn't do what was right. So he says here, going on, do not let your adornment be merely outward. So what's he saying here? Your adornment, your clothing, your beauty shouldn't be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Beauty must come, first of all and foremost, from within. So he says, With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. 
And then this is where he goes into the husbands. Husbands likewise. In the same way that the women were to fulfill their role, their characteristics, in the same way husbands dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. You're together, working together as heirs of the grace that God has given that your prayers be not hindered. He makes it very clear. In Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4, he says this, The women was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. When women are adorned with the gold and silver and saying, look at me, he says, that's the wrong heart. That's not a good sign. That's not what you want to characterize you. And he goes on in 1 Timothy in our text there in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 17, he says this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's not about having the gold. It's not about looking like I've got it all and wanting everybody's attention to, to look at me. Inconspicuousness asks the question, is how I dress, is it showing off my wealth? Do I dress this way because it shows what I have and what you may not have? Am I dressing this way so that you'll look at me and say, wow? Am I dressing this way so I can you know, assume that I have more than you or more than others I come in contact with? The bottom line is, he's very clear. There ought to be an inconspicuousness about us as women. Wearsby once again adds this point. Glamour can be applied to the outside but the godliness must come from within. And it's more important that, we as, that women be godly than they be beautiful on the outside. Because when they're beautiful on the inside, they are more beautiful on the outside. So after these three characteristics are given, he sums it all up in verse 11. But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Women are to wear that which is proper. That which is good. That which is beautiful from the inside out. Women are to wear that which shows good works, he says. Good works has the idea of living with purpose as opposed to loose living. He says, dress appropriately to your calling. If you claim to know Christ, if you claim to be a child of God, then the bottom line is your dress ought to reflect that as women. As we look at verse 11, we see this characteristic characteristic that women are possessed to learn in silence with all submission this is where i said oftentimes there are a lot of women who are all too joyful to ensue an argument over this women to be silent in the church to submit means to be under in rank or to not lord over a man that's simply all it means to be under in rank and not to lord it over a man and I've heard all kinds of uh, explanations of this over the years. Why can't women be pastors? Well, because God's Word says they're not to lord it over man. They're to fall under man in rank. And once again, it's not a disrespectful thing. It doesn't mean that they're less spiritual. It doesn't mean that they're inferior to. It does mean to speak without contention or to speak peaceably. 
So when it says the women are to be silent in the church, it is not the idea that women cannot talk. It's not the idea that women are to never say a word, to never uh, to speak onto a subject. It has the idea that they're not to speak in a, in a manner of contention, but to speak peaceably. And how does that work? By engaging that conversation underneath the rank of man. That's what God's word says. And sometimes we miss, we miss that up. It says women are not to ever say a word. No, that's not what it means. It has the idea of speaking peaceably and understanding. And he tells us why this is in the, in the passage here. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verse 12. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, chapter 2 verse 12. Yeah, there it is. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So verses 12 through 15, Paul further states the role of women in the church. They're to fall underneath the man. You say, well, that's just racist, or that's just prejudice. That's God's design. That's what he said. It's what he has organized. It's what he has planned. And Wearsby, once again, makes this other statement. Submission is not subjugation. Submission is recognizing God's order in the home and in the church and joyfully obeying it. I started off with the phrase that men and women have God-given distinct roles. And when women and men do not fulfill their God-given roles, there is chaos and frustration. But when they do, there is order. And that's the way God has designed it. As we look at this passage, it's something you say, well, I don't really like that. It doesn't really matter what we like. Because here's the deal. Men, you have a role as well. And you need to lead in love. And when we lead in love, guess what? There will be an open communication. There will be an open dialogue. There will be a sense of security and a sense of togetherness and unity and harmony. But when you don't fulfill your role, it's chaos. There's frustration. And women, when you don't obey, there's chaos. There's frustration. It says, God say, I just have to do everything my husband says? That's not the idea. The idea is that we are working together in, in harmony. But man's role is to love. Woman's role is to submit. When man loves as he ought, women don't have a problem submit. Tell me that's not true, women. When one and the other does their job, as God has designed it, there's reciprocal action of both on the other side. My wife doesn't have a problem obeying when I'm loving her as I ought. But men, oftentimes we want our women to obey even though we're not loving as we ought. So, lest you think I'm jumping on women today, men, you have a responsibility as well. To not just say I love you. I read a report years ago of a survey that was taken. How many women hear the words, I love you, from their husbands on a regular basis? A staggering high statistic. But when the second question was asked, it was, how many of you feel loved? It was quite the opposite. See, we can say that we love, but oftentimes we make it conditional as men. If they do what I want, they 
do what I say, if they respond how I want them to respond, well, then it's easy to love. But how about showing the love first? Because love is a decision that results in action. In other words, actions speak louder than words. Because I've made a decision to love my wife, my actions will follow that. And let me just say this, men. Even though God's word says that they are to obey you, you don't have the right to expect it if you're not doing what's right. That's my opinion. Don't just say it. Live it. Follow it through. And see what the result may be. And he says here at the end, Nevertheless, you will be saved in childbearing. Why? Because as they help rear the children in the home, they are once again showing the characteristics of, of nurture and love and faith and holiness and self-control as they serve God by serving their husband. The bottom line is, we both have roles. And ultimately, we're both responsible to, our, to God for our own actions, right? I can't, I can't genuinely say, well, I don't have to love her because she's not obeying me. I'm still accountable to God, right? Amen? I'm still accountable to God. And women, you can't say I'm not obeying him because he doesn't love me. Because ultimately I'm still responsible. But I'm here to tell you this morning that when you love men, the reciprocal action is that they will obey. And you do it together. Not one better than the other. Not one inferior to the other. But in harmony. Each esteeming others better than themselves. But within the God-given roles. And that's what God has called us to. So men, you're the men who be men who pray and love your wives. Women, you're to be women who obey and do what's right in the marriage. And God will honor that. Let's pray.